And we return to the story of Sandy Ficka, drummer for the 1970s rock band Firefall. And they had a few big hits. And as he said, well, if you have a few big hits, it allows you to work forever and forever. Let's return to Sandy Ficka. I got knocked over my head when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And Ringo just looked like he was having the best time of his life. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And I've been doing it ever since. A friend of mine from school named Errol Slack. I'll never forget that name because it's such a cool name. He had a drum set. And so I went over to his house and I sat down on the drum set and I played the there's a little drum thing in the middle of Land of a Thousand Dances by Wilson Pickett that goes and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world so that was the very first thing I ever played on drums I got a drum set when I was in the eighth grade Uh, my dad was in the army and we were stationed at Fort Bragg and I got a drum set and the next day I was in a band and it wasn't because I was a good drummer because I wasn't um but back then if you had a drum set you were in a band (laughs) you know it seemed like the whole world changed the Beatles and then all hell broke loose the British invasion the music scene was just unbelievable and my very first concert that I ever went to see was Jimi Hendrix. I was like 14, and it was also my first date. (laughs) And I went that day and I bought a Nehru shirt and a peace medallion. I'm sure that I stood in front of the stage just with my mouth wide open the whole show. Right when I got out of high school, I ended up getting a gig with a band playing at all the clubs at Fort Bragg. And I was making $110 a week, which was huge. I had a crush on our agent's secretary. So I was in their office one morning. The phone rings, and the secretary picks the phone up and says, you need a drummer in an hour to go to Virginia? I said, I'll go. I didn't know who it was. I didn't care. I just wanted to get out of there. And, uh... So she got a bunch of information and um, hung up the phone and said, wow, you just got a gig with the Drifters. And I was like, whoa. And uh, the Drifters had Under the Boardwalk and Up on the Roof and all those 60s, not really doo-wop songs, but, you know, they they had some major hits. And uh, I had just seen them the night before. They played in Fayetteville, so I went to see them. So she took down all this info, and I go to the hotel where I was told to meet the Drifters. And the Drifters were a, I think, either eight or nine-piece all-black band with uh, four lead singers and then the musicians. And their bus had broken down. The bass singer, Bill Pinckney, who was the leader, and he was the only original guy left from the band, uh, had a Cadillac Eldorado. 
And as I'm walking towards them, they're all standing in the parking lot, and I can just see the look of horror on their face. Because here I was, this 18-year-old kid with long hair down to my shoulders, walking into this all-black band, which I didn't care at all. I loved it. Bill Pinckney looks at me and gives me the keys to the El Dorado and says, you drive. And I was like, okay. We're driving and nobody says a word for probably 100 miles. And I'm thinking, what am I getting into, you know, and and driving along. And then Bill Pinckney is up front with me and the other three guys are in the back. And uh, he reaches into the glove box and pulls out a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 wine, which is like rock gut, and took a big gulp and hands me the bottle. And so what else could I do? So I took a big gulp of it and I handed it to the guys in the back seat. And from that point on, I couldn't shut them up. So anyway, we finally make it to sound check. One thing that I worked on a lot when I was young was my foot. I wanted, I always liked drummers with a strong foot, like John Bonham or whatever. And um, so I'm sitting there, I set up my kit, and I'm showing off a little bit because, you know, hey, I worked on it, so let me do it. And uh, Chuck comes over to me and he says, man, that was some really cool stuff you're playing. He goes, don't do any of it. <laughs> and I said, okay. He says, just keep the groove, you know, let us know where the one is. So that was my first day introduction to the Drifters, and I ended up staying with them for about a year and a half, traveling all up and down the East Coast. Um, it was a, a great point in my life, and then after that, I needed to get off the road a little bit, and uh, so I moved back to Florida and uh, started playing clubs and lounges and and that led up to my firefall. I consider myself a travel expert. <laughs> it's uh it's kind of crazy and you get used to it cuz I mean it's nothing to fly 100,000 miles a year, you know. I do get upgraded quite a bit. We play for free. We get paid to travel. Cuz it is a pain in the butt. You suck it up and just go and do do what you got to do. You get delayed, you get delayed. Some of the worst airports in the country are in the biggest cities. Like, both airports in New York City are terrible. Newark is a little better, but half of it is awful. San Fran, I love San Francisco. I hate the airport. They have more delays than any other city. Man, there was a period there where I had to fly through San Fran a lot. And almost every flight, something happened. And I even asked one of the gate agents once, I said, is San Francisco like the worst airport as far as delays and stuff? And she said, absolutely. They only have two runways. And so if anything happens, if, even if it starts raining a little bit, they close one of the runways. So everybody gets lined up. I was told that they've been negotiating with the city 
for years to try to get another runway. And then the city finally said, okay, you can have another runway. And the airport uh, was demanding even more than what the city was offering. So they pulled the plug on it. It's just amazing. One of the biggest cities in the country, and you have to deal with that. I don't have to go through San Francisco nearly as much as I used to. Now I fly direct to Denver or even L.A. and fly wherever we're going from there. And you've been listening to Sandy Ficka, and he's the drummer for Firefall. And he has been doing that, well, as he put it, forever and forever. And he won't stop until, well, folks stop coming to see him. By the way, he asked about playing the same songs over and over again and whether it gets tiresome. He was just so smart and so wise to give the answer he gave, which is the joy it gave people was worth running around the country and playing. I also love that he said, we play for free. We get paid to travel. And that's such a good attitude as well. And we learned so much from these stories about attitude being half of the half of the battle you have in your life. He's been doing this for 36 years, folks, living his own version of the American dream. It happens every day here, uh, the stories we tell. And that's what we try and do each and every day. That first drum set after seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's show, that did it. It did it for millions of musicians, by the way, that Beatles appearance. And that first drum set that his dad brought him when he was stationed at Fort Bragg changed everything. And by the way, Sandy started a nonprofit called Use Your Gift Foundation that helps kids record and copyright their music. Find out more at useyourgift.org. Sandy Ficka's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now, we bring you the story of a musician who's toured the country for decades, living his American dream as the drummer for a 1970s soft rock band called Firefall. Hello, everybody. My name is Sandy Ficka. I am the drummer with the band Firefall, who had uh, two platinum and a gold record in the 70s. We're still out slugging away at it after 43 years, and the last few years have been really great. There's a resurgence of interest in 70s music, and we've been doing um, a lot of great package shows with other bands from the 70s. And we've done some cruises. I don't consider myself a rock star. But um, if I ever write a book, it's going to be called Dangling My Toes in the Pool of Stardom. We get to play with a lot of people that were huge stars. And in fact, back in the 70s, Firefall toured with Fleetwood Mac on the Rumors Tour, which was like the biggest tour that year, and also their White Album Tour. We still get to play with a lot of bands like that, and uh, it's an interesting lifestyle, I can tell you that. 
I can't say that I hate it. We're treated usually really well. Uh, get to fly to all my gigs, have my own room, and they provide all the you know rental cars and whatever's needed. A lot of times we get picked up in limousines by the uh, venue. Catering is usually pretty good at the shows. They feed you well. I remember back in the day, before I joined Firefall, I was playing in nightclubs in Fort Lauderdale, you know, having to do four or five sets a night, five or six nights a week, and people wish they could do that now. I uh, used to complain all the time. Ah, we have to play so much. Do we have to do this much work? And it was it was tough. And um, I was approached by the lead singer in Firefall one night, and he had cassettes in his hand. He knew where I was playing. I had never met him. And he goes, here, you got the gig if you want it. And I was like, wait a minute. I, I had my own band. We're recording and doing stuff. And I wasn't even really into doing that soft rock, you are the woman, just remember I love you thing. I was more of a rocker. You are the woman that I've always dreamed of. I knew it from the start. So I listened to the tapes. And I was like, wow, these guys are rocking out. Uh, Firefall was never intended to be that soft rock band. They were a rock band at heart. So I said, well, I'll give it a try. You know, so I told them they had to happen to have three gigs in this three-week period that I was off. And uh, so I went in the very first gig uh, that I went to, I'm in my hotel room, telephone rings, and it was the roadie. And he goes, hey, man, I got your drum set up. Uh, come over and check them out. And the hotel was right next to the venue. So my first thing was, I have never gotten that phone call before, you know, saying, come check your drums out. They're already set up. And I was like, okay. So I went over, and there were TV people. There were radio people. There was food backstage, which never happened before. You were lucky to, you know, get free water and sodas at the uh, the clubs. But I was very impressed. And that night, the gig was spectacular. I really worked hard uh, to learn the songs. And we ended up getting three standing ovations and, and encores. That was my first day dangling my toes from there it just got better and better and i've now been in the band 36 years and we're still still doing it. our biggest hit was a song called you are the woman you are the woman that i've always dreamed of i knew it from the start and now you can hear that in just about any grocery store in the country um which is fine you know, it keeps us going. So, and then another one of the big hits was Just Remember I Love You and It'll Be All Right. Um, that one was very big. And then there were a few that weren't quite as big. Um, Strange Way to Tell Me You Love Me, um, So Long, Goodbye I Love You, Mexico. Rick Roberts and Larry Burnett were the two original writers. 
And Ricky wrote all the love songs. And Larry was a little more controversial. Kind of like, and I'm not comparing them to Lennon and McCartney, but, you know, Paul McCartney wrote the lighter love song kind of things, and John Lennon wrote the more controversial and stuff. It's just amazing to me that you have a few hits and it allows you to just work forever and ever. We'll just see how long we can do this, you know, because we're still enjoying it. And the songs, you know, people ask me if I get tired of them, and I I tell them no, because uh, I see uh, on the faces of the people that are familiar with these songs and grew up with these songs and made out in the backseat of their car to these songs, because uh, they're definitely chick songs. I see the look on their faces, and they're just it just takes them back to a, a great time, and uh, it, so it makes it makes it good for us, and we're and we're happy about it. And you're listening to Sandy Ficka, drummer for Firefall, and we're all smiling listening to this story because my goodness, what a great attitude to have. He starts off playing well more sets than he can care to recall in little dive bars all through Fort Lauderdale for beer money and a few extra, well, let's just say, take-it-home dollars. And then he shows up at a gig where he has a hotel room, some food, and somebody has set up his drums. And by the way, if you have ever dated a drummer, known a drummer, well, good luck. You're now labor, because it is a heck of a thing to haul around your drums, set up your drums, and then worse, take them apart at the end of the night and haul them off. When we come back, more of Sandy Ficka's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories, and we love to bring you stories of places across this great country of ours, and today we bring you the story of a town. Hannibal, Missouri was, in the mid-1800s, a gateway to the vast unknown territory beyond the Mississippi, and the town that shaped Samuel Langhorne Clemens, the father of American literature, better known as Mark Twain. Here is Richard Gary, who spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain in a play he's written based on transcripts of Twain's own onstage material. In the early 2000s, Richard bought an old stable in the heart of Hannibal, Missouri, and turned it into a theater where he performs regularly. We just had to sit down and ask him about this wild town and the man it produced. Here is Richard Gary. Well, what you have to understand is that when you cross the Mississippi River, you're in the West. It also was a river town. And that combination of being a Western town and a river town assured that this this was gonna be wild. And then people are heading west, and this was a main immigration route because they wanted to get out to St. Joe, where the wagon trains were. So you could take the Oregon Trail, you could take the California Trail, or the Santa Fe Trail from St. Joe. 
Steamboats would hit town. Every type of character on Earth would get off. Sam Clemens, one day he was up here in this area somewhere, and he heard yelling. So his curiosity got the better of him, went down. Two men are yelling. Some sort of argument. And one of them said, well, let's just take this argument to arms. And the other one said, well, that's fine with me. I'll just shoot you dead. It's kind of like the old Westerns, you know. So they went out, paced off 15 paces, turned and fired. And the little one was right. He got him the other one right in the chest. They both got shots off. Sam Clemens is standing there. Can you imagine his mother <laughs> with all of her children growing up and all of that? And so they picked the man up, they took him over to Grant's drugstore and put him out on the floor. And when shooting like that would happen in a small place, and about a thousand people lived here at that time, they all gather down there. What's going on? You know? And so the latecomers, and Sam describes this, he, the latecomers come up and they go, oh, move over, I pay taxes. I have as much a right to see a man die as anybody else. Move it. And so he said someone ran out and fetched a heavy Bible and brought it back. And he said, I was just a boy, but I thought it was cruel, very cruel. Because they opened that heavy Bible up and they put it down on that poor man's chest. He was struggling to breathe. And according to the story, that pretty much did it. He breathed his last there. But he used that story in Huckleberry Finn. It's the killing of old Boggs by Colonel Sherburne, but it actually happened right down there. And he said, all writers that I know, uh, they take everything that's ever happened to them and eventually it goes in the material. But this uh, little alleyway here by the building is Dead Man's Alley. Well-earned, wide open gambling places, saloons, stabbings in this alleyway. The whole town had that atmosphere and that's why I say a Wild West town. Not totally lawless, but there's certainly that element. You know, the locals always trying to keep a lid on things and then people coming from who knows where. And really, they came from all over the world through here. On one occasion, an English lord came through here on safari. You know, and then it made sense because just like they went to Africa, they came here for American game. You know, grizzlies, buffalo, bighorn sheep, whatever, you know. And so he came through with his entourage, got off steamboat, headed on safari. <laughs> the steamboats, it's, it's part of the lore here. It's one reason the town existed as a trading center. There were no roads in those days, just none. 
just trails, but the Mississippi was their highway here. Huge commercial and transportation uh, vehicle in the center part of the country here. Like Sam Clemens' family, they came up here on steamboat. They didn't come covered wagons. He wasn't born here. He was born west of here in a tiny little place uh, called Florida, Monroe County, Missouri. And uh, I think Florida had about 100 people in it when he was born. They've preserved his house. It's over there as a tourist attraction. It's inside a building. And it's a tiny little house. He said, I've always referred to it as a palace, but there are photographs now. So I shall have to be more guarded. <laughs> when he was four, they moved here for greater opportunities. And his father built that house over on Hill Street, the White House over there. And that's where they lived first here, then after his father died, they were very poor. Can't imagine anyone more poverty-stricken than he was as a boy. And became our first celebrity worldwide. He could get off a train in India and be instantly recognized. He's a worldwide uh, phenomenon. But he came from this little, little place. In those days, uh, people helped each other out. But he says his mother was not too proud to take any job. She took in washing. She, his sister gave piano lessons over at the house. Uh, they did literally everything and then she took him out of school at the start of sixth grade. And uh, he was apprenticed to Mr. A. Mint, who ran a newspaper. The building was right here in this lot. The hotel was over here in that building over on that side. There was a store down below, and his office was on the second floor. He didn't get paid anything as an apprentice but he got room and board, so that's one less mouth to feed, and he's learning a trade. And he says he has no regrets from those days because right down there's where he learned to write in that newspaper office. And I can throw a stone down there from here. You know, it's just wonderful having that in my backyard. And we've been listening to Richard Gary, who has spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain in a play he's written based on transcripts of Twain's own onstage material. And by the way, small-town America has created, well, so many geniuses in this country, and people from really tough circumstances have done, well, just the unimaginable in this country. More from this story in Hannibal, Missouri. And by the way... Richard performs in an old stable in the heart of Hannibal and performs there regularly if you're ever in the area. Take a stop on by when we continue the story of Hannibal, Missouri, the town that created Mark Twain. This is Our American Story.
when we return to our American stories and to Richard Gary's storytelling about a small town in Missouri called Hannibal. It happens to also be the place that Mark Twain put on the map. Let's return to Richard. He had a, his mother rented a little slave, Sandy. In all respects, except officially, he became his brother, lived in a house over there. I think it's all those experiences that led, you know, to his amazing movement from the culture of his time to someone who created that tiring, heroic black figure. We don't give him enough credit. He's criticized for using the N-word, but oh, he was so far ahead. This is racism central right here when he grew up. He was willing to examine everything. He, um, he believed that you needed to examine everything. He said, you need to look at life, you need to think about it, and then make up your own rules. And he said, that's not as easy as it sounds. But I think that's what he did. And he grew up thinking that slavery was God-ordained. Um, his father was a slaveholder. Half the town was slave, half free. But he, he didn't, as he grew up, he didn't just accept it. He was willing to challenge himself, to think about it. And of course, he had some great influences like Sandy and like Uncle Dan'l, who was a slave on his uncle's farm, that used to tell them stories every night. He was a master storyteller. Uh, not formally educated at all, but he said the most educated man I ever knew. He told them all the Uncle Remus tales long before Joel Chandler Harris wrote them down. They were folklore. And so he would hold them spellbound and he said, that good man gave me my love of story and literature. Single-handedly, he said, he just handed it to me every night I heard him. And so he's the model for Jim, Uncle Down. But all those experiences uh, he thought about, he pondered, he... And then I think the catalyst when he went out to California, he saw how the Chinese were being treated. And it outraged him. And he took up their cause in the newspaper that was his first foray into defense of a minority. And then uh, Huckleberry Finn is into that whole question of slavery and the, and the rights of a black man. 
what you see in Huckleberry Finn is this boy and this man going down the river, trying to escape from that whole, the boy is escaping a, a drunk, abusive father, and, and Jim is escaping slavery. And as they go along though, as you read the book, it slowly dawns on Huckleberry. This is a man. I've never thought of him as a man, but, and it's just little chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. See, they told them in Sunday school that if they didn't tell a runaway, they would go to hell. And that's quite a, a threat and, and something that would have a lot of, uh, of influence on a kid. And uh, they see some lies. And Huckleberry says, that might be Cairo. I better go paddle ashore and see. So he had made up his mind telling. But he had already written a letter too. So he pushes off and Jim says, there you go, the old true Huck. You the only white gentleman ever keep his promise, old Jim. He said, took the tuck out of him and he got to thinking. So he tore up the letter. And he said, well, I'll just go to hell. See that, you see, that's when he goes, this is my friend, this is a human being, I'm not going to do it. I'll go to hell, but that's what it means. It's powerful. Now, it hits you right, and it's like, it's what I call Hannibal Finesse. <laughs> he takes a two-by-four and slaps you across the face with it, you know, wake up. This is what, and anytime you're denigrating one of these people, you know, what are you doing? But what makes it even more powerful is that he came out of all of that where it was just an everyday thing. He's immersed in that racism. I mean, up to his little neck, you know, in it every day, yet he comes out of it. And, and, and that's part of what I've been fascinated with, you know, this, how that, how did that happen and what? And I think part of it is, is that, that independence here where um, nobody forces anyone to their point of view here. You can fly your own flag if you want. You know, and and it's still here and I I think it used to be more prevalent in America that that was possible. You know, I don't dis I don't agree with you. Well, that's fine. We can still be neighbors.
I remember my grandfather saying that. A man came over. And I'm from Tennessee originally. My grandfather had a cotton farm that I worked on growing up. And my grandfather always voted Republican. Now, if you don't know much about the South in those days, that was the protest <laughs> party. That was uh, the party of Reconstruction, of, uh, that was anti-racism. And the Democrat Party was the party of uh, Jim Crow and keeping people down. And the guy came over. See, my great-grandfather fought for the Union. He was born in Ireland, came here, hated slavery, fought for the Union in the war, and so my family had always been Republican there in the South. So this guy comes over and says, Chester, you're going to have to vote Democratic this time. There's just no way you can vote Republican. And my grandfather said, well, there is. I just go in and mark my ballot. He said, no, you're, you're really, you're gonna, I'd hate to get rough on you. And my grandfather said, well, you can get as rough as you want, but we'll still remain friends and you'll vote Democrat and I'll vote Republican. And yes, there was a time when such things happened. I think they still happen here today, though maybe not as frequently as we would like. And you were listening to Richard Gary. And my goodness, I don't think there's a guy in America who knows more about the subject of Hannibal, Missouri, or Mark Twain. And again, he has spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain based on Twain's own writing and some of the transcripts of Twain's own onstage material. It turns out Twain wasn't just a writer, by the way. This guy toured and performed. He was the, well, maybe the first stand-up and one-man show before such things became prevalent a century later. Twain was out there. Well, he didn't just create the American novel. Many people think it was the finest and still is the finest American novel. But my goodness, he did so much more and used humor as a weapon, a real weapon. And again, we're always looking for your stories here on Our American Stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that doesn't just mean your stories. If there's someone like Richard in your town that knows a lot about the town, a sort of resident historian, the know-it-all about all that's happened in the past, send some information our way. We'll get in touch. Again, Our American Stories loves, loves these authentic stories about, well, all parts of this great country. And we've learned a lot about Hannibal, Missouri, thanks to Richard Gary's terrific narration and storytelling. The father of American literature, Mark Twain, the town he spent the formative part of his young life, and that's Hannibal, Missouri, the story of both, and so much more, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. 
Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators works hard to effectuate policies that allow small businesses to grow into bigger ones and thus secure their part of the American dream. And our own Joey Cortez brings us today's episode, which begins in, of all places, South America. I was born in El Salvador in a very rural area. I was about nine years old. The whole region became pretty much a war zone. You're listening to Jose Menavar, an American immigrant who fled the Salvadorian Civil War in the 1980s. It was a bloody civil war between a military coalition and various communist groups. And like most communist revolutions, El Salvador's gained traction amongst the farmers. Our town was agriculture and that we all helped on the farm. People started coming to the town from Cuba. And they will come in, they normally will gather at the school. People will come in and listen to them and what they were trying to do is just trying to convince them that, uh, hey, join us and uh, well, you're going to have all this stuff if you do, you know. Cuba had been under Fidel Castro's communist control for about a decade. He sent out tens of thousands of troops and advisors around the world to expand communism. He needed allies. El Salvador was an agrarian society, coffee being its cash crop. It made up 95% of the country's income an income restricted to only 2% of the population. A promising site for a communist revolution. Basically, all we got to do was, you know, sign up with them and you're going to have all of this. What ended up happening is that the town started splitting. Like, some people thought it was a bad idea, some people thought it was a good idea. And uh, even my own family, uh, they split. you know, half of my decided that they would join the movement and the other half thought it was a bad idea. And so we ended up uh, with some of my uncles being in high positions in the communist movement and my dad and my, my uh, grandpa being on the opposite side of things. My dad says that he always thought that it, it was too good to be true what they were saying. Uh, obviously, when he did not join, that's when he started getting threats that they basically told he needed to join or you know, he was going to pay the consequence. So he ended up leaving the town because his life had been threatened, but he left us behind. Mom and there were six of, uh, six of us yeah. in a nearby town. The entire families had disappeared like nobody knew what had happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously the rumor was that they had been eliminated because they were getting in the way of this great movement that was going to happen. Right? Mom tells the story that, um, that she could hear people talking on why we should be eliminated, I guess, and why we shouldn't. And, but I guess uh, the people agreed that they would let us go with the understanding that we had to disappear from the town. And um, one day they decided to come visit us in the middle of the night. Yeah. All those people that were joined, that had already joined the movement, they could get everything that they want from that house. They had taken everything that we, that we had. 
And uh, apparently we were the first family that they actually didn't make disappear. Uh, but we were told that we'd be, better be out of there by, by, by the next night, yeah. My grandpa, my other uh, family member, they still stay behind. And unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't make it. They killed grandma, they killed grandpa. Like they even killed the dog. The dog was was the first one that, to go. We lost a lot of uh, a lot of our family. Yeah. Jose, his siblings, and mother eventually escaped El Salvador and reunited with their father in Houston, Texas. They were legal immigrants, refugees with what's called a temporary protection status. However, after almost a decade in the U.S falling in love with this country and needing to frequently reapply for the temporary protection status, Jose was determined to become an American citizen. The sad thing was that we needed to leave the country and reapply. And so I got the appointment at the same time that my brother did. So we were to leave America, go to El Salvador, and they were gonna, you know, go do the physical down there and then you were going to go to the American Embassy, see if you were approved or not approved to come back. I must have been 21 by that time, I think. And all I know is this country, and then you're leaving this country, and you don't know if they're going to let you back in. And talk about fear for things. So, uh, went to do the exam, and my brother passed with no problem. They found something. In, on my lungs that they needed to further investigate, so I was not approved. To make story short, it, they decided it was nothing. The doctor approved me, so now it was time to go to the embassy and you know and see if we got approved. So we did get approved, and I tell you, when I landed at Bush Airport, I mean, I I think that's probably one of the best moments of my entire life. Even when you got in the plane, it, it, you know. You were very happy, you were excited, but it wasn't until I walked out of those doors that, that you just fell home. You know, you see sometimes in the movie where people want to kiss the ground. I didn't kiss the ground, but man, I sure wanted to. I didn't want to look stupid, but I, I sure wanted to. You know, uh, I remember my girlfriend picking me up on a little Toyota Corolla. And I mean, I was hugging the car. I was, I was hugging her. I mean. I, I just wish more people could experience that feeling because, you know, everybody's quick to criticize this country. I just wish you would spend a week down in El Salvador or some of this country in your whole perspective of this country and appreciation. I mean, if you have any brains, I think your perspective would change. And you've been listening to Jose Menivar. And he is so right, and it's why my grandpa always took me to induction ceremonies when I was young. He didn't want to lose that appreciation in the family for what, well, well, first-generation immigrants appreciate more than anybody in the world. And to see that look and hear those voices, well, it was more than my heart could bear. When we continue, Jose Menevar's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Jose Menivar, 
We left off with Jose fleeing the Salvadoran Civil War to the United States back in the 80s. Let's return to Jose's story. You know, one thing my dad always told us, you got to work hard. I started as a janitor. That was my first job. My mom, she was cleaning offices. She was working at a restaurant in the daytime, full-time, and then she was working four hours at, at night. And um, now my mom uh, had become friends with her manager at, at cleaning office that she would allow her to take the kids to help her out. And when I became um, legal to work age-wise, um, I, I applied for, for the job and got the job. And, they put me to clean restrooms, and that was my first job, and I got very good at it. I got to the point that I was given four hours to clean, I think it was 16 restrooms. I actually kind of developed my own little system of how I'm gonna clean the toilet, you know, what route, and, and that I managed to knock it down to about two and a half hours. It, it normally took the, the four hours that, that it was supposed to take, you know. And what was funny is um, Exxon was one of the tenants there, and they had just installed locks in their restrooms. But if you were inside, there was a way to override the lock. So I would, you know, stick in my books and I would lock myself inside the restroom. And there were a few times where the supervisor would come in and I could hear him trying to open and go, this damn, you know, in Espanol, this damn lock is stuck again, you know. You know it's like I was quietly inside doing my, my homework and just study. But hey, I, I did a great job and I just had to develop it. Uh, a clean system where I could multitask, you know, I'm spraying the mirror at the same time I'm wiping down the corner, you know. So I started as a janitor and um, he, they changed the, the top manager, the account manager. And uh, I guess I was kind of the only people that spoke English, so somehow he liked to talk to me a lot, you know. And so all of a that he decided to move me from what I was cleaning restaurants in um, another supervisor told me, hey, Mr. Mike says that you're gonna be doing this instead. I'm like, no, man, I, <laughs> I don't want it. I was like, I'm doing a good job, why are you moving, right? So, no, he said, you're gonna be vacuuming. Okay. So uh, I got very good at vacuuming, you know. Uh, it was a little harder to hide, but, you know, get did my stuff, but, and then about three months later, he changed me again to another position. Uh, in another position, so I went through like four different changes. And I got irritated because I thought he was speaking on me. So I actually, I came down and I spoke, asked to speak with him. I said, sir, every time I get good at something, you change me. Why do you speak on me? Like, you don't change anybody else. And obviously, a uh, marine guide and, uh, you know, he just said, yeah, you're just gonna do what I tell you. So I, I told him, I said, next time you change me, I'm, I'm quitting. Sure enough, but three months later, uh, Luis, the supervisor, said, hey, Mr. Mike wants to talk to you again. He's gonna change me. So um, I came down, you know, I'm a man of my word, so I said I was gonna quit if he changed me, and, you know, I'm gonna quit. And sure enough, he said, uh, I'm, I'm gonna change you. And I said, well, sir, I told you that I was gonna quit, you know. And so I handed over my keys and he just, you know, he got up and said, sit down. And he said, well, for the last, I don't know, almost year, you've been training to be a supervisor. Yeah. I said, I've been doing what? Yeah, you're good at everything you do now. You know everything. So now I'm going to promote you to be a supervisor. Yeah. So that's really how my career took off. 
Jose proceeded to earn two more promotions until he was recruited to become the VP of Operations at PJS, the professional janitorial service. Eager to have a more profound impact on his employees, Jose was confronted with an unsuspecting foe, the Texas branch of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. They had been trying to gain ground in the janitorial industry. Five of the six janitorial companies in Houston signed neutrality agreements with the union, allowing the SEIU to attempt to unionize their workforce. For some context, companies often sign these agreements to prevent unions from picketing, boycotting, and having the union organize a strike amongst their employees behind their back. Of the six janitorial companies in Houston, PJS was the only one not to sign the neutrality agreement. So at the beginning, I guess I would say I was pretty neutral. You know, I, my views were, you know, unions doesn't sound like they're all that bad. But once we start seeing the taxes that they use, you know, uh, harassing our employees, I mean, it gets to the point that my religion tells me I shouldn't hate anybody, but it got to the point that, look, you're crossing a line, you know. You don't try to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. I think our employees became very educated in what the union was all about. And our employees clearly didn't want to join the union. But the union did not back down. 750 and 800 bearing, okay? Two buildings, one garage with one garage exit, okay? Um, so by this time, they were trying to convince our employees to join the union, right? So one of the things that they did, they actually decided to block the exit of the garage. Remember, this is late at night. The only tenants are not in the building. Our employees are the only ones parked in the garage. They decided to block the exit of the garage with one of their vehicles. That way, everybody would just, all the cars would line up behind there, and this is how they were going to talk to them. You know, that's just wrong. People were, you know, these people are people that have two jobs. They, 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 all they want to do is go home and start the routine the next day, but they won't move. They were forcing them to listen to their message. We had a company picnic here, and um, we're having fun. We're playing mini soccer. We're playing stupid games. So one of the employees comes to me, hey, uh, Jose, uh, so what time are you going to raffle the other stuff? I'm like, what are you talking about? The, the other stuff, the stuff in the van. I said, what are you talking about? The stuff that we sign up uh, when we were coming in. Like, man, I had no idea what you're talking about. Can you show me what you're talking about? So we walked down the street. They had literally set up shop on the street with a Chrysler minivan. They had toasters, microwaves, you know, uh, all kinds of different appliances. And they had set up shop pretending to be with PJS, and they were getting people, hey, just fill up this car and we're gonna put you in the drawing for this. Name, phone number, you know, uh, address. So they were have, making them fill up the information card, pretending to that that they were they were us, you know. And then obviously we try to approach them and they're in seated, I mean, I guess public property. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't do anything about it, you know, but I mean, to me, if you want to recruit your employees, tell them what, what you're all about and let them decide, but don't be trying to trick them. 
There was one time that uh, they heard that there was going to be a big rally downtown where all the PJ's employees were going to be there. And people are calling, who are the employees that are going to be there? I'm not going to be there. I don't know. We, we can spy. We guess we'll find out. So then they came in and said, well, we want to go and protest. The employees are going to be protesting, right? Can't tell you what to do or not to do. And one guy was going to, kind of the ringleader, he goes, well, can we come to your office, park our cars there, make some signs? We're going to go protest the protest. And so turns out that none of those people protesting were our employees. It is well documented that the SEIU hires temporary workers to protest as if they are employees of the targeted company. They're not, not PJS employees. There were some college kids that they had busted in from Austin or some university. You know. So, but anyway, they showed up there, and that, that was kind of, kind of cute. Yeah. And we're listening to Jose Menivar, and what a story he's telling. The Salvadoran refugee comes to America, rises up the ranks of a janitorial company, and what do you know? coming up against unscrupulous union bosses. And by the way, there are good unions working together carefully and closely with employers all over this great country. Uh, But fair and free elections are what unions and proper representation are all about. And tricking people, tricking employees into signing up for a union isn't exactly the best way to do it. And by the way, sometimes there are employers who don't play fair too. And when we come back... More of Jose Menevar's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we want to hear your stories, particularly your immigrant stories and your immigration stories about your family members who came here from somewhere else. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org and share your family's immigrant story. Jose Menevar's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and bring you the final installment of Jose Menevoir's story. We left off with his employer battling the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Let's get back to the story. We had another situation at Cisco, which is a, uh, another account which we actually lost. And this is how the employees describe it to us. Uh, look, uh, you don't have to sign up. Uh, I just need to get your signature on this piece of paper. All is saying that I try to talk to you. You didn't want to talk to me, so and then I will leave you alone. Well, what they were signing was a petition to petition the ownership of that building to hire 
a union company because we were PJS was a bad company. But the way they got all those signatures, just about everybody, you know, it, basically they were telling, look, my boss, I have, you know, uh, thinks I'm not doing my job. Just sign here just to say that I talked to you. Okay, yeah, let me sign. Yeah. We got a call uh, and, and we got statements from, from, from the different people, you know, because we wanted to get it in, in writing that that had, had happened. But that's just many of the things. I mean, I got personally got housekeeper approaching me saying, look, these people are showing up in my house, you know. I mean, they're knocking on my door. What can you do? The SEIU started a smear campaign, plaguing the clients of PJS with flyers, letters, newsletters, web postings, and more, alleging that the company was violating wage and labor laws, which is odd because many of their employees make higher wages than what the SEIU typically bargains for. We lose a lot of business, okay, because we don't want to meet someone else's price. So they'll, they'll come to us and say, look, we like you guys. We like what you say. We like what you stand for. We like your product. We like your system. But all the other janitorial companies are telling me that they can do it for 10% less. Guess what? They're not making 10% less profit, okay? They're paying the employees 10% less than we would. And what's gonna happen is they're gonna keep losing employees. Turnover is gonna be higher. You know, the employees are not gonna be as motivated to do a good job. So yeah, they are 10% cheaper, but the only reason they're 10% cheaper is because the way they're treating the employee is not equal to the way we're gonna treat them. Doesn't sound like the type of company underpaying and mistreating their workers. So CEO Brent Southwell hit the SEIU with a defamation and disparagement lawsuit. The company lost business because of the SEIU. 12 contracts to be exact. Usually these sort of cases are settled before reaching court, but Brent wanted to make a public example of the SEIU so that other businesses don't fall victim to union antics. Almost a decade later, delayed by union stall tactics, the suit went to trial. The jury voted in favor of PJS and demanded that the union pay the company $5.3 million in lost business and punitive damages. The first time in this country's history that a union has been found guilty of defamation and disparagement against a business. A business that has done nothing but helps their employees work towards their American dreams. There was something about the janitorial that always brought me back, and it was, how do you change people's, I wouldn't say destiny, but how do you coach people that if you're good at what you do and you do a good job, it doesn't matter what it is. It might be cleaning toilets, but there's a career there, and anything's possible. We live in the greatest country in the world. Uh, the opportunity's here. You just gotta go and grab it. Yeah. And Jose has helped make these opportunities more reachable for PJS employees. It all began with Jose personally teaching English classes to his workers. And now PJS pays a language teaching company to teach this necessary skill that helps his employees move up in the world. Yeah, you can live in this country happy without English, but you're limited on the things you're going to be able to do. You are limiting me to promote you to a, to a better position because I need you to communicate in English. That's going to start opening up the door. You know that if you learn English, 
you're working part-time at night, nobody's there at night, so you don't need to speak English, you know, that's fine. But if once you start learning English, I can promote you to the daytime. Daytime job is full-time, daytime job is much easier, because the bulk of the cleaning is done at night, and the daytime you just maintain it, and you're gonna make more money. I mean, it's that simple, but I can't put you as a day mayor unless you are able to communicate a little bit. And we actually pay them to sit in those classes. And the way it works is you get paid for half of the time that you're in the English classes as you go. It's 16 weeks. And if you complete the 16 weeks, then you get the other half. So literally, we're not, we're not charging you to learn the English. And we're actually paying you at whatever rate you make. At, you know, if it's overtime, we'll pay you the overtime. So we try to make it very easy. Obviously, we as a company benefit as well because some of our, my best supervisors and day mates and day porters keep coming out of the English classes. We want to help the employees, uh, and by helping them, we're helping ourselves. You know, uh, by taking care of them, we're also taking care of ourselves because you treat them right. We always say we treat them as first-class citizens. And, and there's a lot of loyalty that we have among our employees, yeah. And that's just, to me, is very rewarding, you know. When you tell an employee, you know, hey, you're ready to be a supervisor, which means you're gonna make more money, which means you're gonna be able to provide more for your family. So that, to me, that's very, very rewarding, yeah. And now Jose has even more opportunity to impact lives, as he has recently been given perhaps the ultimate promotion, president of PJS. It feels good, um, and the reason it feels good okay, is because now I can actually influence even more people. You know, uh, when I say influences, look, if I can make it, you can make it. You know, uh, and it, and I think a lot of people, you know, I don't do things because they, nobody really takes the time to encourage them. You know, hey, you got to learn English. You know. Hey, hey, you, you, you got you to gotta work hard, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter if the guy next door is getting paid the same thing and you're working harder than he is, but believe me, eventually somebody's going to notice and things are going to change for you. You know, it's that type of change that I, that I, that's what I love doing. Now we're to the point that almost all my managers, are, we all start as housekeeper and they're all being, being promoted. So. I use the same way that they promoted me. I actually tell them, look, if you do this, this we're going to promote you a supervisor. So it's not like I'm throwing them in different positions without telling them. But I actually tell them. And so a lot of people are making a good career by being a janitor. And you've just heard Jose Menivar's story. And what an American dreamer story it is. Comes here from El Salvador. At the height of the Civil War, the communists just destroying that great country. And comes here as a janitor and ends up being president of PJS, a janitorial company with over 1,400 employees. And as always, our American Dreamers stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. Jose Menhivar's story here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. Here's Lindsay Marie. When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you are thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. 
Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers. And we, the consumers, are always the losers. The Why Minutes. Because why matters. And to hear more Why Minutes, go to whyminutes.com. American Stories, and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan. And Tom is a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last, it's just as wild. Here's Tom. I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, there was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels, Mrs. Jackson, a friend of Grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked Grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous, the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly, but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery, Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. 
I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her what was going on. It wasn't like Grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town, and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight. My folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold I crawled back in. The next morning I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into the office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that Grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room, and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace, holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room. Threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat, he asked for car keys and money, but Grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive. When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral scheduled for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him get in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. 
He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket, and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally, he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket. And she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away and loaded it into the hearse, Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forests. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in Grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened Grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What, said the sheriff? Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, sheriff but my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The sheriff thought for a moment and said, wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson. The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out. We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. If we find him in the casket, I may have to take Grandma into custody. She could be in a lot of trouble. Wait, my dad said. Wait a minute, Sheriff, before you do anything. Wait? No, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, Maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistance as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there is a casket. They had the funeral and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, 
Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated. My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan. And by the way, we want your stories, and as you can tell, we don't discriminate. 95, 10 years old, the north, the south, the east, the west, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit's story, here on Our American Stories. Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to your story at oanetwork.org. That's your story at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> 